0: Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. While you're turning there, just a a quick refreshing of the memory. We've been uh, going through verse by verse, passage by passage, through the book of Ephesians. We are now in chapter 4, which largely has to do with the implications of the gospel in a covenant community, uh, which we also call the church. And so, we've been listening to Paul and what he's been saying uh, concerning a covenant community, and how we are to live in regards to God and to each other. And now we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And this is what Paul says. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this verse. We pray that as we open up the scriptures and as we we seek to, to find you in them, that we would be found today. We ask that you would teach us about your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us, the church, as a gift, to make us more like your beloved Son. So we ask that we would not, as Paul says, we would not grieve the comforter with our sins, whether it's the sins that we commit or the sins that we omit or the sins that we hide in secret or the sins that we are blatant with or those which we are completely unaware of because our hearts are deceitful. Your word says, Lord, that your word has the ability to divide between the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So even those things that we don't even know are there, we pray that you would expose them. As we open up your word this morning, Lord, search us, O God, know our hearts, try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting life. And for those of us that are entangled in sin, for those of us that struggle with sin, for those of us who sin, for all of us, Lord, show us not just how to be better people, Show us what it means to be free from sin and enslaved to the beautiful righteousness of God. We don't just want to be good people. We want to worship a good God. Teach us how to enjoy you today as we let go of our old selves and we embrace the new self in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Um, If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've probably noticed a a pattern with Paul as he's encouraging the church, teaching the church, teaching us what uh, what it means to be in relationship to one another and to God. And so, naturally, he's speaking about things not to do, Things to do instead, and there's this pattern that Paul has developed. Don't lie, instead, speak the truth, verse 25, because, and then he gives a motivation, because we are members of one another. Or perhaps in uh, verse 28, "No longer steal, that's who you used to be. Now instead, uh, pursue honest vocation with your own hands, so that here's the motivation, so that you can uh, share with those in need, so that you can impact the community. And so there's this pattern of behavior. Don't do this. Do this instead for the body of Christ and the glory of God. And so at this point, at this juncture, it seems like Paul interrupts his little pattern of of behaviors to almost randomly, arbitrarily bring up the Holy Spirit. But it's not really arbitrary, and it's not random. The Holy Spirit, it turns out, is an integral part of all of these things. Those of you that have no idea who the Holy Spirit is or you heard about him somewhere, somehow, the Holy Spirit is a core part of our faith. We, uh, I believe it was Tertullian who first coined the phrase the Trinity, referring to God as one God in three persons. Meaning, if you are a Christian, you believe, and this is unique to Christianity, that God exists as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed would say. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. Paul brings up one of the persons of the Godhead, but it's not arbitrary. Why does Paul, in the midst of our relational uh, interactions, in in the midst of our behavior, bring up the Holy Spirit saying not to grieve Him, but that the Holy Spirit plays an incredibly connected part with all of these things. We're speaking about covenant. We're speaking about the life of the church. We're speaking about regeneration by the power of God. We're speaking about lives being changed. We're speaking about redemption. And the Holy Spirit plays an integral part in all of those things. So this is what I want to do for the next 30, 45 minutes. I want to take a basic look at redemption for the life of the individual. I want to remind us what happened to us and what is now happening to us as God is redeeming us. And then I want to explain three things. There are many things that the Holy Spirit does. I want to explain three things from this verse that the Holy Spirit does in redemption. So that we can look at this verse and not only find it to be absolutely clear, but glad joyful truth i want us to leave this building looking looking at this verse going i am so glad that that verse is there and i want to embrace it so three things about the holy spirit we'll start with what is right there in verse 30 the holy spirit seals us for the day of redemption christians first point christians are sealed by the holy spirit for the day of redemption When Paul speaks about the day of redemption, he uses that synonymously with the day of the Lord. This is referring to a day yet future when everybody, Christian, non-Christian, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, professor, humanistic, naturalistic, scientist, doctor, all people everywhere will give an account to God on the last day for how they live their lives. I want to make this really personal. Everyone within the sound of my voice will stand before God and give an account for how he or she lived their life. And you will either impress God or you will leave Him unimpressed. You will either match His holiness or you will not. Everyone will stand before God to bring an account. Now, before we go into Giving an account for our lives, I want to remind you of what God's eternal purpose is from the foundations of the earth with you. We spoke about this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. The eternal purpose of God is to dwell with people in all of his glory. That is his driving passion, that is what makes his heart beat. That is what causes him, so to speak, to get up in the morning. If that's what he did, that is what that that is what drives him in his mission. That is his mission. Is he wants to dwell with his people? He wants to dwell with him and show him, uh, show them, excuse me, his glory. That means that we were made in his image for that very purpose. We were made to be satisfied to enjoy God in all of His glory. But because we sinned. Because of the sin of Adam and because we inherited that sin. And by sin, I don't mean individual acts of sin. I mean the condition in which our disposition, our affections, who we are inherently is a, a broken and rebellious and fallen. Everybody on the face of the earth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul would say in Romans 3.23. Because of, the, of our sin, our desire then becomes to turn away from Him towards anything else. Romans is emphatic in showing us that we would rather turn towards anything that God has created. Anything, even good things. It could be money. It could be career. It could be relationship. It could be our children. It could be uh, food. It could be our ambitions in life. It is those good things that we have caused to be ultimate things. We have supplanted God on His throne with anything else. And so though God's purpose is to dwell with His people in glory... Our purpose, because of our sin, our purpose is to turn away from him. And so, because of our sin and because of our rebellion, we merit his wrath instead. Now, the wrath of God and its deepest manifestation, hell, judgment, standing and giving an account for our sins on the day of judgment, those, those words don't sit too well with the modern mind. Most of us in this room are not quite comfortable with speaking. We love talking about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, and those are all true. We are not quite so comfortable with speaking about the wrath of God. We don't quite know what to do with it. We sure don't know what to do, perhaps, with hell. So we, we just put those things on the shelf and speak about his, his love. But God's wrath is simply an extension of His holiness. It, it means that God cannot deal with sin. And evil, and we would expect that of a holy God—that He cannot turn a blind eye to the evil in this world. The bummer is that we are evil apart from Christ, so He must deal with us. He banishes us from His presence. While this is difficult for our minds to to kind of wrap around, per, uh, some of us perhaps would would ask this question: How could God do that? How, why can't He just? sweep it under the rug. It's because of his holiness. Well, can't he just, you know, can't he just forget about all of those things? Why does he have to do this and banish us away from his his presence? It it might help to think about God's wrath in this sense. Paul said this in Romans chapter 1, He speaking about God's passive wrath. In chapter 1, verse 24, in verse 26, and in verse 28, that of A version, a form of God's passive wrath is to simply let people do what they want to do. In other words, he gives them over to their depravity. He gives them over to their sinful desires. He gives them over to the lust of their flesh. One of the best uh, stories, I think, in literature explaining that was C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis writes this story about a group of people, and it's an an analogous story. don't take every word of it literally. He's just trying to make this point. But he paints paints this uh, fictional story of a group of people that leave hell on a bus and visit heaven. And his whole point in writing this story is to say, if people could leave hell and go to heaven and visit it, would they be so steered up by heaven that they would never go back to hell? His whole point in the book is to say, No apart from God opening their eyes to see Him as alluring and glorious and wonderful, the wrath of God in its sheer form is that we desire our sin, we are self-centered, and when He leaves us in that state, that is the state that we choose for eternity. To quote Him in His book, He says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Which further explains Paul's description of hell in Thessalonians when he says, It is really you being banished away from the presence of God's power. The ultimate form of his wrath. So God's desire is to dwell with us in glory. Because of sin, our sinful desire is to turn away from His glory. And so God justly and righteously gives us what we want to our own destruction. At this point, you might say, well, God has failed. God's purpose was to dwell with people, but we have proven that He has failed in that. If what you are saying is true, we turn away from Him. But the testimony of Scripture is that God's will never fails. If God is sovereign, as the Scripture states, His purpose and His will are always accomplished. One of the most beautiful pictures of this, I believe, is from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 46, verse 8 through 10. When God says, remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. Listen to this. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. God accomplishes the purpose which he has set out to do. It's never thwarted. So that begs the question, well, if God created us for his own glory to dwell, but we are sinful, and he can't dwell among sinful people, then how is his purpose accomplished? The scriptures would say, by him choosing a remnant and saving them by grace. Romans chapter 11 verse 5 through 6 says, In the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. This means that God, so to speak, steps into the direction of your destructive path by grace. Stiff arms you by his sheer jealous love and says, You will not go any farther. I am calling you by name. Romans chapter 10 verse 20, Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me, thus saith the Lord. I revealed myself to those who were not even asking for me. He sets himself in the trajectory of your destructive path and he says, this is as far as you shall go. So God's purpose is not thwarted by history. It's not thwarted by sin. It's not thwarted by evil. It's not thwarted by governments. It's not thwarted by kings. It's not even thwarted by human will. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Meaning Christians are not saved because they are more spiritual than anyone else. They are saved by the sheer grace and pleasure of God. Apart from works. Now, even Christians will stand before God on the day of judgment. Everyone will. What makes it different is that Christians will stand by grace. Everyone will give an account for how they live their life. The unrepentant sinner will have to look at their life and hope that it matches God's perfect holiness. It will not. The Christian can look on their life and see all of the mistakes that they made, all of the sin that they have accomplished, all of the righteousness that they have not accomplished, and yet say with authority and assurance and confidence, I stand by grace with confidence in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I've made it. You have assurance. The Christian is accountable then to grace. So that's what Paul means when he says you are sealed by the Holy Spirit for that day. What happens there? Well, you are assured. And the reason that you can have that assurance and that confidence that you can stand before God one day without fear is because the Holy Spirit has sealed your heart for that day. Christians are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Paul actually said this back in chapter 1, uh, verse 13 and 14. He said, When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in Him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, Paul is saying, When you were generated by the power of the Holy Spirit, He sealed you as a down payment so that you could be assured, even when you mess up on Monday morning, you can know with the confidence that comes by the presence of the Holy Spirit that you belong to God. No sin, no act of Satan, nothing in this life can tear you from the love of God. But this, this begs the question, if Christians are redeemed by grace, if I am one of the redeemed, How come I am imperfect? If Christians are redeemed, how come we are imperfect? And if you've been around anybody, Christians, of all people, you know that we're not not perfect. We're far from it. So how can we be redeemed and imperfect at the same time? And this is because of the place in redemptive history that we occupy together. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, something happened to those who put their faith in him. They were saved by grace. I believe it's in Colossians chapter 2 that Paul says that those things that were hostile against you, the the law that you and I broke, the things that accuse you before God, all of your sins which were hostile towards you, Christ took and he nailed them to the cross. Meaning, everything that you've ever done has been declawed. In that same chapter, it says that Jesus also made a show openly of Satan and his demons, meaning the one who accuses you with the things that you have done wrong before God has been defanged. So Satan, the accuser, has been defanged. Those things that accuse you have been declawed. You are able to stand before God pure and holy and righteous. But in this present life, it also means that the power of sin has been broken over you. In the book of Genesis, it was said of Esau that sin, uh, excuse me, not Esau, Cain, that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Paul would say in Romans that anyone who sins is a slave of sin. That's all we know, and that's all we can do. The Scripture declares that for the Christian who has put their faith in Christ, that power has been broken for the first time. It has no power over you. You can choose not to let it rule you. It's still crouching at your door, however. So the power of sin is broken, but the presence of sin still remains. And this creates for us a tension. We don't have to sin. But it's there, and we do. Theologians often refer to this in their own weird way as the already but not yet. Meaning God's kingdom, they would say, is already here, but it's not yet here. Kind of weird, doesn't make any sense. That's what they say. Here's what they mean. The kingdom of God is already here. Jesus said, when he was walking on this earth to repent of your sins because the kingdom of God is here. In another place, he would say something even more outlandish. He would say, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what did he do? He cast out demons, man. Demons trembled when he walked into the room. So Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. But we can look at the world around us We can see our lives, our suffering, our struggle, our sin, and see that there's an element in which it's not here. And the scriptures would also say, hey, there is coming a time when I will come, I will right every wrong, I will wipe away every tear, I will have the government sit upon my shoulders, Isaiah chapter 6, I will deal, uh, chapter 9, I will deal with all of this stuff. So there's a sense in which it has been inaugurated, but it is not yet consummated. It's not yet finished. We live in that tension. That's why we struggle with sin. That's why we're tempted. That's why things happen that we don't want to happen. That's why there's sin. That's why there's cancer. That's why there's sickness and disease. That's why there's death. That's why there's betrayal. And the list goes on. And we as Christians are called into that mess to live a different way. So you should be asking this question. How in the world do I do that? How do I navigate that mess? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit is not a familiar part of your Christian vocabulary... It needs to be right now. If you don't know of it, you need to take out some 4 by 6 flashcards and write on it the Holy Spirit and read it. If your version of the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, you need to revise it. The Holy Spirit is that person of the Godhead who is present with the church right now. The Holy Spirit does a few things. I don't have enough time to speak about all that the Holy Spirit does. I want to give you one thing that He does. And I want you to own that one thing this morning. I want you to leave this church building with that one thing, a familiar part of your vocabulary and your life practice. For if you get it, you will experience the joy of the Lord. And then I want to teach you how He does it. What the Holy Spirit does, how He does it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. You remember we were going through Paul's prayer. Paul says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, okay, here it is, to be strengthened with power In the inner man, through the Holy Spirit, there's that one thing. Okay, I'm going to read it again, just in case you missed it. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. You want to know what that one thing is? It is power from on high. It is the windows of heaven being dropped into your lap in this, in this broken life. It is the power of God being made known to, in, uh, to finite broken individuals. The power of God being made known to finite creatures. What does that power accomplish? Oh, you're going to find out. Next verse. Well, let me start from the top because it's really good. I pray that He may grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit, that, okay, stop. (laughs) What is the eternal purpose of God? To dwell with people, which is impossible because of our sin. Listen, that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. The Holy Spirit does what? The Holy Spirit brings power to you in this life so that the Messiah can dwell in your life with power. I don't know any other way to say it. The Holy Spirit causes you to taste of the power of God by also allowing the Messiah to dwell in your hearts by faith. Has your mom ever told you or your Sunday school teacher, Christ Jesus is in your heart? You looked in your shirt and you're like, no, he's not. He's like a 170-pound Hebrew man. Like, I don't think he could fit in. How does that work? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He dwells in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job, one of them, is to provide us with unparalleled power, giving us a taste of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as... The Messiah dwells in us. We become conformed to him. How does the Holy Spirit do that? That's what he does. He strengthens us so that the Messiah, Jesus, can dwell in us. How does he do that? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is speaking about the same thing to a different church. What does the Holy Spirit do? He strengthens us, Christians, so that, the, so that God can dwell in us with his fullness. How does the Holy Spirit do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As we read this, put your hand on your head because this is going to blow your mind. <laughs> Let me back up a verse. Verse 17. There's just too much. I'm sorry. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom. That makes me want the Holy Spirit to be here. What does that freedom do? Here it is. Hold on. We all, okay, that freedom causes this. So that we all with unveiled faces, stop. The Holy Spirit causes our freedom. Our hearts to be unveiled. Not talking about our our physical sight. He causes our, our disposition, our affections, our will to be unveiled to see something that we did not see before. Keep reading. So that we're looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. The Holy Spirit causes us to see the glory of the Lord in a way that we did not see before. The word that Paul uses when he says looking, I, I love the NASB, it says beholding. It's not like a, gl- it's not like a glance. We, we think about it like in conversion terms, like I got saved, okay, I'm done. Let's do a Bible study or something. He's speaking about a prolonged gaze. We all, because of the Holy Spirit, have unveiled faces and are looking as in a mirror, At the glory of the Lord. And that gaze is causing this. That we would be transformed. Into the same image. From glory to glory. This is from the Lord. Who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Strengthens sinful broken Christians. So that God can dwell in them. In Jesus. The way that he does it is by fixing our eyes on Jesus in such a way that we find His glory absolutely alluring. So that we can find His glory attractive. So that we can find it as that which satisfies us when before it had not been. And the result of that is we want more of Him. The Holy Spirit rewards us by giving us more of Him. And the more of Christ that dwells in us, the more we become like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more we want to gaze into his beauty and his glory. And the more we want to gaze into his beauty and his glory, the more we become like him. And the cycle never stops. And that's your life, Christian. Until the day that he comes again to retrieve his bride for his own. And we will see him like never before. And we will be transformed in the blink of an eye. And we are on that trajectory, and that is our joyful, glad experience. We need the Holy Spirit. That's the second point. Christians are conformed to Christ by the Holy Spirit. They're sealed for a future day. In the present time, they're conformed to that point. The beauty of Christmas we, we found a, a few weeks ago is that God is with us. God is with us. But the beauty of Pentecost is that God is in us. God is in us by His Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to be stuck in some abstract speaking about the Holy Spirit. I want to make this so real for you and me. Why is it good for God to be in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit? Here's why. Here's one reason why. It's because now for the first time, our Christian motivation can come from within, not from without. You see, before I was a Christian, I did try to do good things, but I was not altruistic. I I did not have pure good intentions. I could do good actions and try to be a good person, but it was usually motivated by guilt or condemnation. Or some ulterior motive, or perhaps by money or career or the fear of man or wanting to impress somebody. It came from without. Those things don't change your heart. That's why you can do good things until you're blue in the face and you will lack joy and you will lack righteousness. But now the Holy Spirit resides in you. You know what that means? I want to take you back to Ephesians 4, verse 30. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit because you were sealed by him. That means when God, God is so, I think it's the prophet Habakkuk that said that God is so pure that he cannot even look upon evil. He's grieved by sin. But now when God is grieved by sin, you are grieved by sin. The emotion of God has now become your emotion. When you do something that is sinful, and it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but when we mess up, all of a sudden there's something that's, that's changed. We grieve. Why? Because the emotion of God has become your emotion. He's in you, not without of you anymore. God is grieved by sin. We've been seeing some of these patterns of, of lying, uh, things that hurt one another, gossip, uh, anger, bitterness, all of these things. And, and the list is not exhaustive. Any, any type of sin which hurts God and which we are not loving God and not loving neighbor, they grieve God. But now we are not trying to live according to His holiness because we are afraid of judgment or because we are trying to be better people than we are not, but because we love God and we are grieved with the things that He is grieved with. That is a powerful motivation. King David when he committed adultery taking Bathsheba and when in order to do that he murdered Bathsheba's husband uh, Uriah, certainly sinned against both of those individuals. But when the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart, he said this in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you God, against you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see, whereas before you were motivated by Uh, simply not being as good as you thought you were or even hurting somebody else or maybe uh, hurting yourself or disappointing yourself, all of a sudden your motivation has become transcendent. The Holy Spirit now shows you the holiness of God and your heart is broken when you sin. Christians are convicted by the Holy Spirit, which is also how the Holy Spirit then works to conform you to Jesus Christ. He shows you How far you have fallen and joyfully teaches you a better way to go. That's why Jesus would say, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now for the first time in your life, you actually thirst for righteousness. You thirst for God's glory. Holy Spirit seals us for that last day. In the present day, he conforms us to Christ. And the way in which he does it is he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And now, for the first time, we have no fear of judgment. This is, this is what this means for you and I. I have been speaking up until this moment about the Christian, but for the non-Christian, anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ's finished work, you're still trying to make it happen. You're still trying to save yourself. You're hoping that when you stand before God on that last day, you will have something to, to show for it. For those of you that are not Christians, you will stand before God on the day of judgment with your own reputation. I beg of you to reconsider that you don't have to do that. That by grace, you can stand before God with Christ's reputation free of charge. For that, you simply need to be the most desperate person you have ever been in this life. You need to be spiritually bankrupt you need to realize that there is nothing of value that you can present before God and you receive from Him everything that you have needed in this life. When that happens, you can be assured because the Holy Spirit has sealed you and you know that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit because your life is uh, on the rails of the Holy Spirit's conviction. And you are noticing a conformity to Christ that never took place before. It doesn't mean you're perfect in this life. It just means you love his righteousness and you hate sin now. So how should you and I live in light of that? I would say by the gospel. Self-righteousness would say to you and I. That what we do now influences or takes care of what we did in the past. The gospel flips that entirely on its head. It says what takes place in the past has taken care of what is happening right now and in the future. That's actually right there in verse 30. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit now. Why? Because you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. The gospel. What has already been done for you influences how you act now. My question that I want to leave you with this morning is, are you aware of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit? It's a dangerous and sad way to live to be ignorant of Him. David, actually in that same chapter in Psalm 51, used to cultivate that awareness asking Asking the Father, hey, please don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. should be our prayer this morning. Because the best thing that you and I have, the best thing that the church has going for us, is the presence of the living God. It is not this building. It is not the songs that we sing It is not my particular way of arranging syllables. It is not our programs. It is not our food. It is not the coffee table. It is not any of those things. The only thing that we have going for us as a church is the living presence of God manifested by the Holy Spirit. When that isn't here, we have no reason to meet You take that away and we might as well sleep in on Sunday morning. There are better things to do. If all we're doing is gathering in this building and just going through the motions, do something else. But if the presence of God falls upon us, we have a reason to get up on Sunday morning and Monday morning. Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. A week after Easter in 2010, before this campus existed, it was just Carp and Ventura, I think. I came back from a trip and heard about our Easter service. I heard incredible things. I heard that this Spirit of God fell upon people as we were meeting at Carp High. We've always had this running joke that whenever you're outdoors, it's harder to worship When the sun is beating on you and you're standing on concrete, there's something about turning off the lights that makes things more intimate. But I heard that that particular day, a thousand people simultaneously fell prostrate prostrate before God. In the middle of the day, people were set free, saved, renewed. The power of God fell. That week, I came back and I said, That is a beautiful thing. Let us never be indifferent to that. That was two years ago. I would say the same thing to you. Have we? Are we living our lives, not only individually, but as a church, in such a way that if the Holy Spirit were to be taken from us, we would not see the difference? I don't want to live that way. And I don't think you do either. I want to live a life that would not work if the Holy Spirit were not there. want to end my sermon this morning in relation to the Holy Spirit by showing you a picture on the screen of my daughter. <laughs> if you're wondering, my daughter is that one. <clears throat> the reason I'm showing you that picture is because that's the face. That's the one that gets me. It's that thing she does with her mouth. She like puckers a little bit. She's almost about to smile, but not quite. And it's that, that place that she gets to where I, I want her to just go over the edge and give me a big old smile. But she just teases me, you know? That's the smile that'll get anything that she wants from me. And I am so fortunate that she cannot say words yet. <laughs> when that comes, I'm doomed. Most of you parents with kids, daughters, sons, know that even more than I do, Some are grown, some are teenagers, some are 30, 40 years old. You would say with me, I would do anything for my kid. When she makes that face to me, uh, we have this like schedule of sleeping and eating, and I have to do like some of those things, and they're hard. When she makes that face, it's out the window, man. I would do anything, anything she asked. God understands this as our Father. When He says, Jesus actually says this in Luke chapter. 11, what father uh, among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Nobody. You'd give your kid whatever he wanted. Verse 13, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the only thing we have to do this morning. I would pray we would do it in unison, with conviction, with authority and confidence, with joy, and with a glad desperation. That when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon our church, He will. Heavenly Father, reminded of the words of the ancients, said that by His Holy Spirit, God has assured us of eternal life and makes us sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Grant us that now, Lord. Pour out Your Holy Spirit Just like you promised the prophet Joel. There would come a time where you do that. Save us for your glory. If there's anyone in this church who has not known salvation in you, I pray that you would would grab them in their seats right now. For every Christian in this room, I pray that you would grab them in their seats right now. And you, Holy Spirit, would open their eyes to see Jesus Christ as more glorious than he has ever appeared to them in this life. And let that be our testimony as reality, church. We are enthralled with the Messiah. Come soon, in Jesus' name, amen.